Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make podcasts. I spend most of my life online, but I've got no idea how to fix any of the devices that help me to spend my time there. But I've been invited to a party. It's called a restart party. And this party might just help me to understand the technology that I use every day and all the time. A restart party is a pop-up community repair event where skilled volunteers help people diagnose and repair their broken electronics. They are organised by the Restart Project, who are a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. So let's go now to a restart party. The name is Arthur Hare, and I've come here because the radio cassette doesn't work. And uh, I, I just thought they would get some advice as to how, uh, how one could repair it rather than throw it away. Imagine a scenario in which all of the technologies that we've come to depend on cease to exist. They're completely gone. Everything from your computer to your toaster to the train that you take to work. Oh, great. That'd be terrific. Because I'm from a generation that didn't have these things. So that, that's all I say. I mean... Right. That'd be great. Do you have any survival tricks that could help you? Survival in what sense? Well, to survive without technology. Oh, yes, I would just revert to my original plodding life that I had when I was young, you know. Although there was some technology back then, there was still electricity, there was still technology, it's just a different yes. form it took. Yes, I thought you were referring to the digital age when you said how we would exist without your computer. Well, I haven't got a computer. Uh, these sort of things, you know. Uh, my toaster, well... I don't think it's worked by digital things. It's just a, a simple heater. When you switch it on, it comes on and heats the bread. But if, if the electricity was no longer there to power that toaster... Ah, well, now, now you're talking. I, ha- I have a primer stove. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll probably survive with that. Today, we imagine the unimaginable. Waking up to a world where nothing works. If that happened... How would we manage without the gadgets and technological systems that govern our society? That's the theme of a new book by Lewis Dartnell called The Knowledge, in which a technological apocalypse is used as a thought experiment to encourage us to consider our dependence on things that we own but we no longer understand. Lewis recently delivered a keynote speech at the International Fix Fest that took place in London in October. In this episode, which features the contribution from some people that I spoke to at a restart party in Tower Hamlets, he provokes us to explore the limits of our understanding as citizens and to think about how those limits might make us vulnerable. My name's Lewis Dartnell. I'm a professor at the University of Westminster and a research scientist. My field is in astrobiology and looking to the possibility of life on other planets. But I do a lot of science outreach, communication and and book writing on the side. You use the concept of the apocalypse as a thought exercise. Are you at all worried in any real way about the fact that we're so dependent on technology that there might be some kind of apocalypse? (laughs) So I do sleep soundly. (laughs) Don't worry too much about this. I always make the joke that I'm not some kind of doomsayer. I don't have a placard at the end of the world as an eye round my round my front. But on the other hand, I think we would be foolish and naive to try to 
to kind of pull the wool over our own eyes, to, to bury our head in the sand and convince ourselves that we are invincible, that, that our modern civilization is impervious to collapse. Because virtually all of the civilization through history have collapsed. And if anything, the medieval European society that went through the, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, and to build this globalized society we have today, if anything, that society is an anomaly. It, it's, it's a weird civilization history that we did persist and continue progressing for so long. And when you start looking into the mechanics of, of civilizations and how they support themselves and why they collapse, it seems the case that the more complex a civilization becomes, the more vulnerable, the more prone to a sudden and catastrophic collapse it comes. You get this house of cards or dominoes effect where if one thing stops working, falls over, you get these kind of cascades of other things failing. So in our modern world, for example, if, if you were to lose electricity, it wouldn't just be annoying because you wouldn't be able to flick a light switch. The water would stop being pumped through the pipes to your house. The gas would stop being pumped. The petroleum would stop being refined and delivered. Your transport network would start falling down. And, and the whole, whole fabric of the society we live in today would start unweaving, start coming apart. So it's possible, but I hope that it's not particularly likely. And I think what makes it less likely to happen is people's awareness of that, of that possibility. <laughs> My name's David Moore. Uh, I'm here at the restart because I, I thought I'd brought along something and I hadn't. <laughs> I'd brought along a bag of medicine. <laughs> but I've got a pen that I want to be looked at. That's why I come along with my mate. So I see where it was and you know what it's all about, really. Do you have any survival tricks that would help you uh, survive? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you could probably grow your own food. I mean, you could grow your own food in the back garden. Well, some of it anyway. Uh, and you could buy stuff from other people. I mean, farming and all the rest of it. I think you'd go back to bartering, probably. Food and skills and, and things yeah go back to digging up things in the ground <laughs> like mining and things like right. and melting things down but it would be very unorganized to start with i mean i think people would be just killing and stealing off each other it's almost like a bomb being dropped you know an atom bomb being dropped on on london or something and people all trying to run out and screaming and all the cl- all the roads would be all clogged up if there were you know any survivors and people in the countryside would be probably shooting them to stop taking away what they've got right. <laughs> not trying to help them <laughs> right. Right. that's why i imagine it would be like <laughs> Absolutely. And what do you think for you would be the hardest thing for you to live without in terms of technology? Probably a washing machine <laughs> or a fridge. Right. <laughs> Why is it that we seem to have lost a lot of the skills and understanding of how to support ourselves in even basic ways within our culture at least it's simply that you just don't need those skills anymore you know in the kind of 1400s and the 1500s societies in britain and europe were again we, we, we lived on the land we were 80 90 percent farmers and so we knew where things came from because we did it ourselves and as our civilization has progressed and become more complex or more advanced in some senses. The way we've done that is by each individual to become more and more specialised and focused in what they do, in, in this kind of ecology of different job descriptions. And that means that everyone does something exceedingly well, but helps everyone else out in society by relying on each other's services, 
So 90% of the population doesn't need to know how to forge steel or how to be a farmer or how to be a nurse or understand medicine because other people will be far better at it than you could ever be at, at all the different things you might need. That's what's enabled our society to reach the level it has because we've become very specific and focused. But on the other hand, that is a point of vulnerability. If something were to start unravelling that social contract, if people stopped working together in the community and we all start kind of falling down to the bottom, that's the sort of situations that people talk about for kind of civilization collapse or, or societal collapse. As I say, it has, has happened with other societies in history and there's no good reason to think it's about to happen for ours, but also we're not impervious to it. Lewis's book moves away from specialisation and back towards generalisation. It is not just a science book, nor is it purely sociology or purely history. As someone who has spent a long time thinking about how different types of knowledge interact and inform one another, Lewis himself does not settle in any of these categories exclusively. In fact, his training is in a different field altogether, astrobiology. So you've spent time investigating potential signs of life on Mars. Do you see that work as connected to the work that you've done for your book, The Knowledge, which seeks to understand what sustains life on Earth? I came from a biology background. That field is all about looking at the possibility of life on other planets, understanding the environment on Mars, for example, or maybe Europa, what sort of conditions life needs to emerge in the first place and then develop and evolve, and therefore whether it's feasible to be talking about Martian microbes, Martian bacteria. And my very first book that I wrote was on that subject of of astrobiology. It's called Life in the Universe, Beginner's Guide. And the new book, The Knowledge, is is on something completely and utterly different. It's it's on how would you reboot civilization if if you ever needed to. But conceptually, they, they are still fairly similar. It's all about digging down through the surface layers, that very kind of basement layer to the fundamentals of how things work and what they need, whether that's life and whether it would have the conditions it needs on Mars or the conditions for a civilization or society to flourish. What raw materials does it need from the natural world? How does it process those things into the, the products that it needs? I mean, that's, that's all civilization really is. It's a machine for extracting stuff from the natural world to make its inhabitants to make humans happier or healthier or or live longer. And so there are deep links between the astrobiology and and the the latest book that I've written. I'm Anne. Imagine a scenario in which all the technologies that we've come to depend on cease to exist. They've just completely gone. Everything from your computer to the toaster to the train that you take to work. What would be your first response? I live in the middle of London in a block of flats. Nothing would work, I suppose. Probably even the plumbing wouldn't work. The door entry system wouldn't work get in and out of my flat but I probably couldn't get in and out of the building I guess we'd have to just break windows and you know find ways to get out and start living off allotments and things in the medium term it's not impossible but place with the density of people in London I mean it's got to get filthy very quickly and I hope it happens in winter rather than summer but then you've got different things in winter we'll all freeze so within a week could be mayhem and you know no food in the supermarkets no way to open the supermarkets no transport no way to deliver food from ports where we yeah. imported or you know 
bring it from wherever it's picked. It's pretty catastrophic, I'd say. Do you have any survival tricks that could help you in that scenario? If I was in the countryside, maybe. If I was camping or in a place where you can survive somehow, but I don't know. I mean, I don't even have a bike, a normal bike. I mean, that's a way of getting around. So I would try and get a bike before that happens. <laughs> I think within a week there would be some kind of terrible things happening, like a zombie movie. Yeah. Or maybe not. Maybe, you know, people will rally. It could be like a war situation. And what would be the hardest piece of technology for you to live without? Um, internet, I guess, just for information and stuff. Or a telephone, any telephone, any means of communication. Telephone, yeah. yeah. Telephone, being able to contact people, communicate with people far away. Yeah, that's the, the hardest bit, I think. Because yeah. we still have books, you know, some of us have quite a lot. <laughs> In your talk, you were talking about big libraries and how books aren't necessarily the best devices for storing knowledge. I used to work in libraries. When you put up your slide of the the library, I was kind of imagining the Library of Alexandria, really, (laughs) where a lot of books were lost. But the internet is kind of the modern-day equivalent of that. It's so amazing that we can get any information at our fingertips. There's a lot of physical rooms where that storage is being kept. And if things happen to that storage, we lose it, very similar to to Alexandria, I guess. You had an alternative, a way of kind of hacking that of having a kind of apocalypse ready kindle are there other ways of preserving our shared knowledge going forward i guess the great irony in that is that although the internet was designed and constructed by the u.s military to survive a nuclear attack because it had all the redundancy it was a network ironically the internet would be one of the very first things to evaporate if an apocalypse ever comes because it is utterly reliant on electricity being supplied to the servers and the routers and that kind of infrastructure that's needed to move that information around so although things like google and wikipedia are phenomenal human achievements again if, if you just think back to what it might be in a hundred years ago to try to find something out to understand something compared to what you can do to reach into a magical little device in your pocket to call up wikipedia to look up a keyword and read through and understand it within three four minutes but as we've kind of been discussing that knowledge is itself quite nebulous wikipedia could collapse if if there were to be a shock to the infrastructure things like electricity starts failing and things start unraveling and i think it's not just human understanding like these kind of encyclopedias and and Wikipedia, it's our personal information as well. So imagine a historian 50 years in the future trying to write the biography of someone who today ends up being influential in, in, in the subsequent course of history. But there's no correspondence left in a physical medium. There's no love letters. There's, there's no memos. There's no diaries because it was all emails or it was posts on Twitter or Facebook or the photographs of the woman or man that you marry or your child's first steps. We take pictures on digital cameras, upload them to Facebook or whatever social media and share them with all our friends. But they don't physically exist. It's not inconceivable that the Facebook is hacked and stuff is lost. Or as happens with like Friends Reunited, we just moved to a new platform and you've lost all of that heritage. So I think it's not just this profound and slightly dark idea of civilization itself collapsing, which will almost certainly not happen. But the idea that I think we should all be just a little bit more aware of how we are saving our own memories, our own histories, our own pasts, and not relying on solely digital pictures or emails or posts on stuff but to print a couple of photographs have them as a physical artifact you can hold in your hands and put an album to you know write a letter to someone on a piece of paper in your own handwriting every now and then just to have something that that would be preserved (laughs) 
What's your name and why are you here at the Restart Project today? So my name's Fiona. I heard about it through work and I thought it was quite interesting because I've got a number of gadgets at home that are not working, but I've been so busy I've not had the chance to dispose of them. I've come today because I've got a hi-fi, mini hi-fi that I use in the bedroom that's not working, I would like to repair. It's the CD that's not actually playing but the radio still works. Imagine a scenario in which all of the technologies that we've come to depend on cease to exist. I suppose if I was forced to not have stuff then I would make dough. It's just really becoming de-computerised to an extent that you're not automatically relying on those devices. Like if we didn't have internet or emails, we would go back to sending letters or visiting people and being more inclusive and participating in in the things that we do. Because it seems like the more technology we have, we're, we're not cohesive as a community and I think as we remove all that and start from scratch it'll kind of be where we're talking more getting to know people more and then when we're doing all that we don't really need everything else that building the a block or a house of isolation that was a bit deep that answer but I think you get a gist of what I'm I'm saying yeah no I think that's a really really Good point. We need to build a kind of commute communities and we're all isolated, like you say, and technology has helped us to do that. But at the same time, also, I think lots of people's communities are based online, aren't they now? The book is nominally this reboot guide, a kind of a quick start manual for the whole of the modern world, the whole of civilization, and how you could reboot it, like you, you could reboot a computer after it's crashed. But of course, the, the book isn't really about the end of the world at all. It's about our world today, how it works behind the scenes, where things come from, and therefore looking at how we got to where we are today. It's a history of our world. I've, I've tried to tell a story of how we got to now, how we got to here and, and the making of us and what happened over the last 10,000 years when we went from the very earliest beginnings of civilization and settling down and trying to domesticate wild plant species we found into crops. And then that whole story of our progression and development from those humble beginnings to where we find ourselves today with electricity and radio and internal combustion engines and antibiotics and all of the benefits and advantages that that understanding technology brings us, that we don't die age 30 anymore of of preventable diseases or or malnutrition, but also some of the problems and issues that these technologies and their use have thrown up. For for example, the internal combustion engine and and climate change or CFCs we developed to use in our fridges to preserve food, but ended up being a a problem for the ozone layer. So it's all that interaction, as you say, between the science and, and the history of of our path of development and how we progress through centuries of advancement and and development to to understand our own kind of roots, to therefore understand where we are at the moment and therefore also highlight what issues and problems we face in the modern world. Sustainability and energy efficiency and and kind of repairing things but without massively exceeding the the carrying capacity of the planet. So I use the notion of the end of the world to, to look at what we have today to hopefully avoid the coming of the end of the world. My name is Dino and I'm here because I got a a digital radio which I'm very attached to and uh, suddenly one day it stopped working. 
Do you have any survival tricks that could help you? As long as I've got a bag of lentils, I'm very happy. And what would be the hardest thing to do without? Just coping with the natural phenomenon like storms and earthquakes and, you know, the mega, mega events. If I can survive them, then I can survive everything. And Lewis Dartnell has a book called The Knowledge in which he talks through how to rebuild the world from scratch. Is it important to know those kinds of things? I think we'll end up making the same mistakes that we are in the midst of now. The uh, the same minds that uh, brought us to this stage of civilization are not the people who should be redesigning the the world again. Dino raises an important point here. In fact, in our podcast next month, we'll be talking about the need to completely redesign the systems that govern the world we live in. We know that current patterns of resource use are unsustainable. The technologies we use are becoming cheaper and cheaper. The workers involved in their production are working longer hours for less money. More and more carbon is being released into our atmosphere. Resources like water and rare earth minerals are running low. And recyclers are struggling to keep up with massive amounts of waste. When you weigh all that together, the idea of a fresh start begins to look almost appealing. But the answer is not to simply go back in time. It's important that we remember all the incredible tools we have at our fingertips, which will make it possible to redesign our world for the better. From 3D printing, to solar energy, to the amazing information sharing resource that is the internet. While it is wrong to think that more advanced is always better for society when it comes to technology, Lewis reminds us that it is worth remembering how important science can be in diagnosing problems within society and in finding solutions to those problems. I think the main issue is that a lot of us living in the modern developed world today have, have kind of lost a connection with where things come from, how they're made, how they're done. You walk into a shop and things have magically appeared there and you don't really put a second thought as to how they got there. What, what was the supply chain? What was the kind of resources and processes that went into making this wonderful gadget you've just bought? And so what I've been trying to explore with this book, with the knowledge, is Maybe just kind of open people's eyes a little bit to that curiosity. How is this modern world around us working behind the scenes to provide for everything that we need? And giving people that inquisitiveness to start exploring a bit themselves. Maybe asking some of these questions about between product A and product B, what might be the best one to buy in terms of sustainability or energy use or how easily it is to repair if there's any kind of problem that comes up with it. As soon as your phone goes on the blink, it doesn't work anymore. No one even thinks to reach for a screwdriver, to open up, to have a poke around and see if they can fix it themselves. Because it's basically impossible. It's microchips. It's, it's stuff that is impossible for you to fix yourself. Whereas 50 years ago, your wireless radio goes on the blink, you open it up, and you can, you can kind of understand the mechanisms and components that are in there. They, they make up a, a certain amount of intuitive sense, and you can tinker with them. You can replace a fuse or replace the valve or something, and it will start working again. And on the few occasions where I have repaired something, like a clock that wasn't working anymore, or realised that the wire had shaken loose and some electronics and just kind of soldered it back in again, that, that kind of thrill and satisfaction you get is, is almost indescribable. We don't really get that very much anymore. Something goes in the bin and we get a new phone on the contract and we haven't interacted with the technology that we use. We're kind of consumers of the technology nowadays and not really partners in it or players in it. We buy it but we don't really know where it comes from or how it works. And I think that from all the fun that I had when I was writing this book, I think most of us would have experienced that same satisfaction and and, and kind of thrill of of just every now and then trying something like that yourself. (laughs) 
My name's Sally and we have a broken slow cooker base so we're hoping to find out if it can be fixed today. Imagine a scenario in which all the technologies we have come to depend on cease to exist. They're just completely gone, everything from your computer to the toaster to the train that you take to work. What would be your first response? Is it happening tomorrow? Is it sudden? <laughs> I think it would be a bit of a shock. We've forgotten how to do things. I think even camping for quite a lot of us is a bit confronting because we're so used to being cosseted. So, yeah, it would take quite a lot of getting used to and considerable amount of shock. (laughs) Do you have any survival tricks that could help you? Oh, I'm not sure about survival tricks. I've watched all of those programs about middle-class people foraging and I'd like to hope I would remember some of that, but I'd probably die of eating a poisonous mushroom fairly early on. There's loads of kind of survivalist books and TV shows out there. We've all seen Bear Grylls and Rainey's. <laughs> like how you start a fire, how you skin a badger with your own teeth kind of stuff. And, and there's a lot of what I term competence porn in there. It's satisfying to see people being really good at what they do for these kind of like bushcraft skills. But I think what's even more interesting and something that isn't really talked about is the stuff beyond those survival skills. Like where do these things that I use every single day come from? How do I make soap if I ever need to do so I don't get sick? from germs how do I make glass if I need to to make either like a microscope or windows in in, in the building so we're not kind of living in the in the dark the whole time and it's it's those kind of steps after you survive the apocalypse and like to be honest I don't after chapter one of the book talk about the apocalypse (laughs) at all it's just the premise for that thought experiment and it's something that I don't think has really been explored before which is why I wanted to to research and, and look into it myself I think people's conception of what science is 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 what they've inherited from their experiences of of science at school and what you're taught in the classroom isn't on the whole science but for the exams from the curriculum you have to remember a whole list of facts and how to label diagrams and then regurgitate that information to to get high marks and, and a good grade but but science is kind of the opposite of that in fact science is the way that you find those things out in the first place. It's, it's a method of exploring the natural world to come to understand how things work and, and where they come from. And so I think, to a large extent, people are put off science as a concept because they remember it being a bit dry and a bit boring and a bit of a memory exercise and not that wonderful joy and thrill of, of curiosity and inquisitiveness. And with the knowledge, a lot of it was very hands-on and practical. And I made sure I got some first-hand experience on how things are made and done. So, for example, I made a knife from scratch in a, in a blacksmith's working by a kind of coke fueled hearth and, and bellows and hammer and anvil. I performed the kind of ultimate Robinson Crusoe experiment on a single beach where you can make glass from absolute scratch. You can get all the raw materials you need to make glass from a single beach. And the idea was that glass is the single most important material for the scientific revolution. You need it to make things like thermometers or barometers for measuring pressure or for making lenses, which gives you the telescope and microscope. The idea being without glass, we would not have had the scientific revolution, therefore we would not have had the world we have today. And also the Kindle that I hacked to make uh, Apocalypse Proof, as you mentioned. So all of this was just wonderfully fun. Make a project that I just spend a weekend doing or kind of run off to uh, somewhere for a week to learn how to do something and then write about it. So it was, I I didn't consider it to be work at all. It was just mucking about and then writing a book from what I'd learned at the end of it. What we are seeing, and why we're here for the FixFest meeting for these past few days, is there are now 
surges and all these grassroots campaigns to start addressing that, to show people how to repair a toaster when it's bust, to get people involved in craft skills, to get people involved in maker projects, whether that's 3D printing some plastic spare parts or wiring together some electronics. People are feeling that general dissatisfaction that I was mentioning earlier and doing something about it and joining the societies and clubs. And I think that's a very fulfilling and an exciting process to see going on. Restart Radio is both a podcast and a weekly show that goes out at 1.30 on Tuesdays on Resonance 104.4 FM, repeated on Thursdays at 11.30 AM. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communication assistant, Lauren. Today's Restart party is over, so it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.